Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we look at Canadian defence. I'm joined by the Honourable David Colinette, the Honourable Andrew Leslie, and the Honourable Peter McKay. All three served as elected members of Parliament. David and Peter served as Minister of Defence, and they both held other portfolios. Andy served in the Canadian Armed Forces at home and abroad before retiring as a Lieutenant General. David is currently Chair of the NATO Association. Peter is a member of the CJAI Advisory Council. Welcome back, Peter, and welcome, David and Andy. Great to be here with you. Some context for listeners. Canada is a member of NATO and a partner to the United States in the North American Aerospace Command, known as NORAD. Our current defense strategy, Strong, Secure, and Engaged, which was released in 2017, is currently under review, given all the changes we've seen in the world, Ukraine, what's the rise of China, what have you. In recent years, we have committed more money to defense spending, and we are enhancing our commitments to both NATO and NORAD. That said, we are a long way from reaching the NATO target of spending 2% of GDP on defense. This was a target that was agreed at the Wales NATO summit in 2014. And we may get into this, but I think, Peter, you might have been at that. According to NATO, we are currently spend 1.39% of GDP on defense, although we argue that our substantive contribution is significant. This includes leading the Enhanced Forward Presence Brigade in Latvia, with commitments of both fighter jets, ships, and a submarine, as well as our assistance to Ukraine, hosting the NATO Climate and Security Center for Excellence. We also participate in the UN sanctions uh, efforts around the Koreas. Our new Indo-Pacific strategy also promises more presence in that region, including a third frigate. So let's get started. And David, I'm gonna put you the first question. What are the key factors, political, economic, and fiscal constraints, geostrategic threats that go into making a defense policy? Well, it's all of the, all of the above, uh, Colin. Uh, you know, in the ge- geostrategic sense, uh, we go back to our colonial days. Uh, we we were there for the defense of Britain. Uh, you can even talk about the, the Boer War, the, obviously the First World War, the Second World War, and uh, and then things changed uh, with the the Soviet Union's threat and communism and the, the war in Korea. Um, uh, but along the way, um, there was a there was a, a sense that that somehow Canada should be uh, more balanced in, in its uh, in its defense posture, and uh, we had the you know the, the rise of peacekeeping with Lester Pearson, and and certainly uh, speaking as someone who's been involved with the Liberal Party most of his life, uh, there's been a dichotomy within the party between um, those who believe in Canada as a warrior nation, going back to the earlier days that I just mentioned, and those that are more affected by Canada's internationalist. Uh, you know, role of, of being a, a, a helpful partner in the in the world. When when I became uh, minister in 1993, it was interesting because you, you t- we talked about the geostrategic, and there was a, a geostrategic shift, and that was uh, that the, the the collapse of the Soviet Union meant that there should be a peace dividend, and this affected our party platform in 1993 in the Red Book, and uh, that meant that uh, we ran on massive defense cuts. Uh, also a white paper uh, and, and a sort of a change in, in the focus of, of, of our military. Um, certainly I, I didn't share those views and I had a bit of a difficulty uh, internally uh, because I, I, I don't think some of my colleagues really understood 
uh, you know, Russian history and what was likely to happen. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm a clairvoyant, but I, the, the, what is happening in the last uh, year or two, well, I guess going back to 214 and perhaps earlier, uh, with the revanchism of, uh, of, of Russia, uh, I, I think was overlooked by uh, a, a lot of planners and certainly uh, colleagues in, in, in my party. Uh, the last point, of course, uh, is, is the financial uh, issue, and that is um, uh, it was one that was very uh, difficult for us. Uh, you know, overspending by liberal and conservative governments over the years led us to a massive uh, uh, GDP uh, debt to GDP ratio that had to be dealt with. I think the IMF actually criticized Canada, so it, it, it was tough to juggle. We had to. Um, cut expenditures and then, but we had obligations. We had all peacekeeping obligations in Bosnia and Croatia, and then la later Kosovo and Afghanistan that, that Peter had to deal with. Uh, and and uh, I think it was a bit of a triumph in the 1994 white paper to preserve a combat capable military uh, amidst all the cuts and uh, fighting off those terrible people at finance, which, we, which all ministers <laughs> have to fight against. No, a constant theme. Peter, let me move to you because you come in as defense minister, and as David points out, we've got our obligations, some of the peace operations, but we're also in, involved in combat in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, that played into it. You had to deal with finance ministers because we wrote this, we're, we're committed there, and this was ongoing. But what, what's your sense on some of the, the key factors that, as you're looking at defense policy? Yes, I think um, David has laid it out quite well in terms of the, the history and how the Canadian Armed Forces evolved. And, and I would suggest that uh, all of us on this call, certainly the, the three participants, um, philosophically believe very strongly in a, in a robust Canadian Armed Forces and how that balances with all of the other competing interests of government has been a huge challenge for defence ministers. Um, particularly in times of recession. And when the 08-09 recession came around, we were still in the thick of it, so to speak, uh, in trying to provide all of the necessary equipment and supports for our troops in Afghanistan. One of the areas that, uh, that the Conservative government stepped into in 2006 was just you know, dealing with then the war on terror and what was happening in Afghanistan and, and other security challenges. But certainly Afghanistan for this generation of Canadian soldiers was, was massively uh, challenging in terms of our starting point. And, and uh, General Leslie can speak to that in, in great detail as to where we began that conflict uh, in response to the attack uh, on North America, which is sometimes easy to forget that uh, Canada by virtue of Article 5 was pulled into that conflict uh, as a matter of course. And we had to ramp up the, the capabilities, the military capabilities, particularly for the army, uh, going into Kandahar province, the heartland, the spiritual heartland of the Taliban, all of the challenges between the border area with, uh, with Pakistan, many unhelpful neighbors, and asymmetrical warfare is something we had never seen, quite frankly. And so those uh, capital investments in main battle tanks, uh, really the, the labs, the light armored vehicles, even compared to what we had uh, with these Iltis Jeeps and forest green uniforms going into that conflict was, uh, was a massive undertaking. But I, I will say this, I, I was fortunate, and this isn't to disparage any previous ministers of finance, but 
I sat next to Jim Flaherty in, uh, in cabinet. I took Jim to Afghanistan on a couple of occasions. He saw firsthand the pressing need, the casualties that we were taking there as a result of the exposure to IEDs and other types of attacks. And so, you know, compared to other eras, we were able to mobilize, not everything, but we were able to get the heavy lift helicopters we needed. We were able to up armor the, the type of uh, needs for the army with trucks and land clearance. And, uh, and quite frankly, heavy artillery. We were able to procure M777 long range artillery. Interestingly now, Colin, in the context of what uh, Ukraine is, is going through and Canada's ability to contribute to the defense of Ukraine, many of those same pieces of equipment are of course very useful in the defense of Ukraine. But you know, I, uh, I certainly agree with David, there are other pressures that are brought to bear, especially when things start to, to ramp down, so to speak. Uh, when we made the decision to, to pull back from Afghanistan, there were immediate calls for cuts, for programs, for long-term planning. Ours was the Canada First Defense Strategy. And again, Andrew Leslie was very uh, uh, crucial to setting out those longer-term plans, some of which never came to fruition in the aftermath of that recession in 08, 09. Thanks, Peter. Andy, this is a good segue to move to you. You, as Peter referred to, you know, you have a serving officer and in theater in Afghanistan and uh, Canada first. And then you were involved, I'm sure, in the preparation of Strong, Secure and Engaged, which is which was at least in 2017 and is currently under review. Uh, as you recall, it uh, prioritized defense of Canada and the continent and then collective security more broadly. Um, my question to you is, what do you see as the major changes to our security environment right now? Uh, and what, how would you sort of assign priorities going forward? Because the, as we speak, the Defense Department is looking at, as they say, they want to, they recognize, obviously, Ukraine and things, it's time for a change. And I guess the other question, which I will, I'll ask the others to come in on as well, is do we have the right balance as regards the current size of our Army, Air Force, and Navy? Andy. Um Sure. Thanks, Colin. Before I go any further, I'd like to thank David for fighting so hard as a cabinet minister uh, to keep the whole idea of a combat effective force front and center. Uh, did he have the resources to actually fill in all the blanks in terms of equipments, land, sea, and air? No, but he fought to keep it alive. And to Peter, uh, when he was Minister of National Defense, fought the good fight to make sure there was an actual, a staggering amount of equipment delivered in a relatively, relatively short period of time, say 18 months to two years. He's already talked about a lot of it. There's a lot more. But I guess the point of this as well is to draw attention to the superb work by Bill Graham, who was also Minister of National Defense, Liberal Party, who did exemplary work in starting to introduce all the systems and process and some of the initial equipment lines. The point of this is defense procurement can work under either part of the main parties, so long as they have the political will, the attention of cabinet, a prime minister who's willing to listen and get things done, a minister of finance who actually understands the utility of force in an ever increasingly dangerous and complicated world. So let's go fast forward. Ukraine war happens. Again, 2014 deja vu, 2022 savagery of a scale unparalleled in Europe since the Second World War. Russia attacks, no surprise to us who studied Russia. 
and who warned that such an occurrence could happen. Why did Russia attack? Putin's written about it for decades. He has this megalomaniacal urge to be remembered in history as recreating the conditions of the Soviet Union. He's a sociopath, he's a psychopath, and he's an aging dictator starting to fall out of favor. And a good way to unify the Russian people was to go, oh, all that. And plus, let's not forget, he thought he could win. He took a look around at NATO and said, everyone's declared a peace dividend. They don't have enough fighters. They don't have enough long-range artillery. They're starting to mothball all their tanks. I've got lots of the above. The Ukraine, I think I can defeat in two to three weeks. Away we go. Well, thanks to the courage of the Ukraine, we see history being rewritten. And history will actually be recorded in glowing terms for their bravery, their courage, their initiative, their generalship, their president. How does that impact on Canada? Well, I can say this as a former liberal, as a former whip, as a former parlsec for global affairs, Canada-US relations. Since 2015, this government has not spent, reprofiled, delayed, suspended, promised for later times, over $15 billion that was allocated through the process of parliament, promised to the troops and indicated to NATO that we would be spending. That's a lot of money. Do you want to know why the 10,000, or sorry, why the armed forces is 10,000 people short? Because every single year since the liberals have been in power, they've been forced to hand back in about two and a half billion dollars. 1.5 billion will pay for 10,000 people. That's where the shortfall occurred. You want to know why our ships aren't ready or the contracts haven't been signed? Because they've been forced to hand back in about two and a half billion dollars. So after almost seven years of this, the armed forces right now are not ready at a time when we need them most. Not because we expect a land attack on Canada, but we have obligations to our allies, friends, and partners to be able to step up to the plate in a reasonable manner to contribute to literally helping life and death issues resolve themselves in favor of the good guys and girls. We're not doing that. We've sent four tanks out of the 82 that we have, and that was a leap. We sent four aging 777s, which we bought in Afghanistan, but the barrels are almost all shot out. And there's no replacements in sight. We're scrambling and straining to provide a brigade. Actually, just the leadership and about eight or 900 soldiers out of an army, armed forces of about 60,000. Look, in 2003, we had 2,000 soldiers in the former Yugoslavia. We had 2,300 in Afghanistan. We had another scattered air, land, and sea, fighting pirates off the coast of Somalia, providing airlift into Haiti, providing air support to carry foodstuffs into the disaffected and those who were starving in Africa. Now, we have less than 50, five and a zero. So one modest-sized school bus worth of UN troops. We've got about 1,000 focused in Latvia, but they don't have any air defense systems to shoot down enemy drones and aircraft. They have no handheld anti-tank systems. We have not forward deployed our tanks. They don't have sufficient armored engine. The list goes on and on. This is a government and a public service, which is either through incompetence or deliberately or a combination of the both, not responding to the urgent crisis that is the Ukraine, which, if the allies don't pull together, could be truly existential for 
all of us. Our GDP is bigger than Russia's. And, the question and to ask ourselves, oh, sorry, Colin, the question no, to ask ourselves ahead. is, what is our government doing to better respond to the demands of our allies for contributions to what is turning into a savage, brutal battle, which could extend beyond Ukraine if we get it wrong? I'm going to come back to Ukraine, Andy, but I just want to, you made the point that the money that was lapsed, my understanding, and as you point out, these are big dollars, and this has had big implications on why recruitment has fallen and why we, in all of the three main services, we simply do not have the force complement. What, can, can you explain to listeners why lapsed money, which I understood was, could be rolled forward if it wasn't all spent, and we all know defense procurement, there are delays and there's also inflation things, but I'm puzzled by the 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 lapse of funding that was committed, but then I think you're saying went back into general revenue and defense, so that the, the figure we put is what we're spending on defense is not actually the figure that, is, that gets spent. I, I will call, and it's actually a very good question to ask because the professional bureaucrats at Department of National Defense and Treasury are experts in speaking baffle gab. So the whole intent is to confuse you and I as to what is actually going on with the expenditures of defense funds. Lapse means at the end of the year, you didn't spend it, and a certain modest amount is allowed to be programmed in future years. Unspent means the money is allocated to you, but for whatever reason, complications, the its power of saying no uh, to complex documents where just about every public servant has got to say yes, before it can go to the next stage. No one actually ever gets caught saying no, it's just no one says enough yes. And then you've got money which is reprofiled and then you've got money which is, you know, missed or sorry, directed to other activities or higher priority allocations. It's an amalgamation of terms, each of which means slightly different things. But here's the bottom line question to ask. How much money was unspent by DND i.e. not spent by DND that was initially promised, indicated to be there and strong, secure and engaged, or as actually part of the program? And the answer is $15 billion since 2015. Don't get too focused on the term lapse because that means a very niche word for a niche residual of money which can reappear later, but almost never does. Go so ahead, David. Because uh, I'm interested whether this was a problem in your time. And then, uh, Peter, I want you to come in on this because it's important for, for the reasons Anthony's just outlined. But I wonder if this is a problem that's particular to the current government or is it a, a problem that you both Actually, encountered? Colin, I don't want to dominate, but I, I was a general when Peter was there. And I'm telling you, there was a tiny amount of lapsed money. It was in the literally hundreds of millions. And there was almost no money reprofiled. And by the way, when David would minister, I was a colonel in National Defense Headquarters working on the Army financial plan. And David lapsed almost nothing. He had budget cuts applied to his department. But in terms of the money that went unspent that was promised, didn't happen. Well, thank you. You're very, you're very kind, Eddie. And I was going to say that sometimes you had, uh, you know, the, the alacrity of uh, the senior military. Uh, Patty O'Donnell came in one day. He was the vice chief at the time. He was Air Force, a great guy. Uh, and he said, uh, Minister, look, the X millions are going to lapse uh, next week or in three weeks or whatever. 
but if you're willing, I, I've got a deal with, to get two stretch Hercs, uh, Hercules planes, uh, air transport planes. And we, we were then, we had old Hercs from the early days in the 1960s or whenever they were first constructed. And, uh, and I thought, geez, you know, this is a good idea. And so, you know, immediately approved it. I don't think finance was, uh, was that happy, but we, uh, those funds actually were spent, and as they should have been, because we we had the uh, the, the need for uh, heavy lift capability, and our, our existing planes were becoming unserviceable. So sometimes you do get uh, a combination of the political will and the bureaucratic or the military will to come together to overcome uh, the the inertia that you get with the, with the financial system. Peter, was that your experience? I was fortunate in the sense that I, I did have a very supportive prime minister, finance minister, as Andy referenced, but also people at Treasury Board. Uh, Public Works has a lot to do, as does Industry Canada, with these big pieces, uh, big moving parts and procurement, the, the muscle movement that you need to get that type of money through, uh, through cabinet requires really the, the support of your colleagues as well. I was also really fortunate having worked with, uh, with General Leslie, General Natinchik, General Hillier before him, all of whom were not only very capable in terms of their leadership of the troops, but also knew, as, as Andy has laid out quite accurately, how the inner workings of the civilian side of the Department of National Defense and how that interfaces with other departments, and that there is a sense of urgency. And you know that old saying, never waste a crisis. What was happening in Afghanistan really gave me as minister the impetus to make very direct representations to the cabinet, to, to the prime minister and finance minister that this was urgent, that we needed to get heavy armament into Afghanistan to save Canadian lives, to keep up our, our end of the mission when it came to the NATO mission, to be able to support uh, our allies and uh, and our efforts there in meaningful way, ways required big investments. Uh, David mentioned heavy lift Hercs. We bought C-17 Globemasters. There's since been a greater purchase. All of that was undeniably critical to mission success. And, and you know, we could spend the entire time talking about procurement as we could talking about Afghanistan and what mission success ultimately turned into. but. I say for the purposes of this discussion, you really do need to bring all of the the basic elements of the Department of National Defense together to make that case to the political actors and uh, and also be able to communicate that to the public. Because, you know, we've also had several references already to how this is translated to the priorities of Canadians. When tough economic times come, people are looking to make various cuts. National defense has always been the biggest ox to gore when it comes to finding money. Um, but I, I would suggest not to mix metaphors. When, when you see things start to change and, and we're, you know, we're on the cusp of that, if not well into that type of recessionary talk now, it's like the water tables going down in the Serengeti. The animals look at each other much differently. Same thing happens in cabinet. Same thing happens across various departments. Where are we going to find savings? Andy, I'm going to give you the last word before we're on this particular topic because I want to move into a couple of other areas like the Indo-Pacific strategy. But you've described a problem which uh, is significant. Is it fixable? 
or is what is it? Is it political will that's required? Is it bureaucratic uh, effort? Uh, th th this is obviously something that's gone on for several years, and, and you're very articulate in describing it. So we understand the problem, but what needs to be done to fix it? It's actually, um, it sounds complicated, and it can be as complicated as a professional bureaucrat or a politician who doesn't want to spend a penny can make it. But it all boils down to leadership. And as we've seen, both liberal and conservative governments over the last 20 years have had an international crisis wherein they believed that they had to re-equip elements of the armed forces to contribute to international deterrence or to go off and do advanced peacekeeping or peacekeeping in the traditional form or counterinsurgency. What is happening in Ukraine is far more dangerous in terms of its geopolitical impact. And of course, the fact that a nuclear power is engaged in high intensity modern warfare on the European plane. So is it fixable? Yeah, absolutely. We saw it fixed. We saw it fixed by gentlemen, obviously the cabinets and the prime ministers were, were well known, but you know, started Bill Graham, David Pratt, Gord O'Connor, Peter, Peter McKay, others. Um, uh, they did a remarkable job in harnessing those energies and producing the goods. We bought main battle tanks in a matter of months. We bought C-17 aircraft in a matter of six months. We, we bought helicopters, six big Chinook helicopters, the first six of those on a handshake from the U.S. government. We bought triple seven guns. We re-equipped the small arms of the troops and bought mine protection vehicles, counter battery radars, sound ranging systems, and the list goes on and on and on. And of course, afterwards a peace dividend was declared. And then quite frankly, we had a team in place, the current government, which did not understand the utility of defense and how they can contribute. In their entire six, seven years in office, they did one maladjusted visit to Mali with a bunch of helicopters that had such severe restrictions on them. They only did eight operational missions in seven months. <laughs> We're doing eight missions a day in Afghanistan, combined with actually a pretty good defense policy, strong, secure, engage, which they never had any intention of actually doing. And now they're conducting a review while the rest of our friends and allies are actually buying the systems to actually defend themselves or their friends and allies with meaningful contributions such that when Putin looks around next or the successor of Putin, he won't see NATO undefended. And by the way, let's talk about defending our North, which is undefended right now. I'm not suggesting the Russians are gonna leap over the North Pole in their tanks, but Russia, Putin specifically has said many times publicly and privately in documents and speeches, he doesn't recognize Canada's claims to the pristine Arctic. Don't can be I? surprised if you have a bunch of vehicles that show up that can suck modules of metals off the floor in the Arctic or drilling that commences by a fleet of Russian riggers. Can I what just jump do? in there quickly, Colin, uh, just to support- yeah, please, Peter, because I do I, think I that the North, let's, let's get into the North then next, because if that's what you'd like to speak to, Peter. It, it is indeed, because I think, you know, Andrew Leslie has laid out uh, in very stark terms just the degree of vulnerability in the Arctic. And some would say it, it has always been thus, but we have not seen the type of aggression by Russia, not just in Ukraine, 
but in other parts of the, the world as well. And they are you know, just across the water when it comes to Canada's Arctic. Um, the Northwest Passage, as was referenced, is, uh, is internal Canadian waters, although we, we have disputes even with the Americans over that declaration. But we know that the Russians are very active in recapitalizing airfields. They have deep water refueling capability, which we still have not achieved in the Arctic. There is a, a, a urgent need for greater investment. Um, we cannot rely as, as able and as uh, valuable as the Arctic Rangers are. This is insufficient in any way to have the type of eyes on and the type of major capital investments that are required to replace what was once known as the dew line. We need to have not, not weapons, although that discussion I think should be had in a mature way, but we need to have the ability to, at the very least, be able to detect the threats yes. as quickly as possible. And that means modern air defense. It, it's ironically what in fact is needed most urgently in Ukraine, but we need to be able to see those threats immediately. I, I mean, we saw just this week, Colin, just this past week, a Chinese surveillance balloon that drifted for days over North America. That has got to be shocking to most North Americans' sensibilities to think that, you know, clearly there were people that had knowledge of that balloon, but it took six days before there was any decision on what to do about it. I can only imagine the discussions that were going on at Colorado Springs at NORAD headquarters as to what to do. And yet it took that significant period of time before they were able to take it down. If that was an intercontinental ballistic missile, or if these were Russian bombers actually coming into airspace. And I don't want to sound apocryphal or that we're, you know, we're fear-mongering here, but those are our realities. We've seen sorties of Russian planes approaching Canadian airspace. Certainly David can speak to his period in office and, and Andrew as well. We know they're there and we know that they are significantly upping their game in terms of their investment and equipment. And we haven't even broached the subject of China who are building icebreakers and aircraft carriers at an, an alarming pace. We talk about getting to 2% of GDP on defense spending. They've been spending upwards of 10, 12, 15% of, uh, of their GDP on defense for the last two or three decades. So we have to be clear-eyed and realistic about the amount of investment, resources, and attention that we pay to Canada's national defense. You know, for a long time, I think we over relied on the fact, well, the Americans will take care of us. They'll do it for us. And, and that's just simply unacceptable. And we've seen recent developments, including, I would suggest, Canada's exclusion from AUKUS as an indication that our closest allies are now questioning Canada's capability and contribution. And I've sat around NATO tables where, yep. you know, these discussions are very uncomfortable when it comes to who is pulling their weight. Who's, who's actually doing the heavy lifting? I'd suggest because of the, the sheer valor, commitment, training, capability of the Canadian Armed Forces, we absolutely put the shine back on Canada's military during the Afghanistan mission, but it's short-lived. And it's always going to be, what have you done for us lately? And right now, four tanks going into uh, Ukraine, the big opening that we see on the horizon in the Arctic here in North America, we absolutely have to up our game. 
Okay, David, I, yeah, yeah, please I, come in on this because, uh, you know, Jens Stollenberg was here last year, with Mr. Trudeau up in the north. Uh, David, be interested in your perspective. Well, I just want to jump in here because, uh, I mean, Andy's been critical of, of the current government. And, uh, you know, uh, I have to say, as, as a longtime liberal, we, we've lived this battle internally uh, with people, uh, a big chunk of the party who are frankly not militarist. And the current government uh, is in alliance with the NDP of the last, uh, was it three or four years? And, and they have a deal going to, 20, 19, uh, to 2025. Um, and that is affecting, I think, the thinking internally. Ukraine has been, uh, has been a, a you know, cold water that, that's woken everyone up. But I think, as Peter's mentioned and, and Andy's mentioned, um, we're, we're playing catch up. Uh, on the Arctic, when, when we did the 1994 white paper, we were cutting everywhere. And I was concerned about the Arctic, as I was concerned about Russian revanchism. And, and even within the military, there was not uh, the, the urgency that there should have been. So it was pretty tough to even even get mention, uh, you know, getting around the cabinet table, getting a consensus on uh, on the Arctic being a priority. Because as Peter said, we've lived under the security uh, umbrella of the Americans. We have NORAD, and you know, we had uh, all the dew line bef before that, uh, and we've we've missed the mark. So now we're we're playing catch up. Uh, certainly, the the Arctic is is the next battlefront, and. Any good consensus that has come out of the Arctic Council, of uh, including Russia, working together on a number of issues, now has been uh, shattered because of the war in Ukraine. Because the Russians, have, I believe, have pulled out of of those discussions. So the, it's reasonable to argue: uh, Is there a role, a formal role, for NATO uh, in the Arctic? But let's not forget that only a few of NATO members are actually Arctic members. So that that requires. An education of countries like Hungary that, and Turkey that, that that aren't even maybe the the most robust members in uh, NATO right now. So there's there's a lot of issues that have to um, have to be dealt with uh, funding. Uh, and I, you know I agree with the analysis, uh, but I think we have to understand why we've why we've gotten there. There's a there's been a complacency internally, and uh, there. There, there is a division among policymakers, certainly within our party, uh, about the way forward, which is which is now being uh, really crystallized because of Ukraine. Certainly, whenever I talk to the Americans, and it says that they would like us to do more up in the north, because they are now preoccupied with Indo-Pacific and obviously with Ukraine, and they see it. We 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 declare and claim sovereignty, but as they say to us, well, exercise it, uh, and we've had. And this goes back to uh, the, the Mulroney government and, and Ronald Reagan, when Mulroney sort of got Ronald Reagan to agree, yes, we're, we're, we, we will acknowledge your claim, we just don't um, accept it because of uh, freedom of navigation purposes on the, the channels. But the, the, the other part of that piece was, of course, and, and as, as you all know, is the Americans said, well, then exercise that sovereignty. It's really what we would like you to do is can part of our binational defense um, so, David, do you feel that, because certainly when I talk to public opinion pollsters, they tell me that the Canadian public has a romantic attachment to the North and would like us to see do more up there. It just takes, uh, is it the political will that we need? Is that what's necessary to do that? Well, as well as the money? You use the right word, the romance. Uh, so the Canadian public is, has this romantic view of the North, but it's not 
uh, a, pr a pragmatic geopolitical view of the North in, in terms of defense. And that's something that we have to, we have to work on public opinion. We have to uh, get people to agree that, and you know, with the, with the Chinese balloon, uh, that, that has done more, I think, to focus uh, Canadian public opinion on the vulnerability uh, of North America than, than anything in, in, in recent history. And, and hopefully now people will realize uh, that what the Russians have been doing, uh, I mean, it's a, the, the, the Russian coast is totally militarized. And as the Arctic warms, uh, you know, we are going to be incredibly vulnerable. I think, Peter, your government uh, called for um, uh, a big port facility at Iqaluit. Uh, I don't know what happened to that. Uh, I mean, we do have uh, Hudson's Bay uh, with, with Churchill at the port there, which has sort of been falling apart. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's iced up a, a lot of the, of the year, but I'm, I'm just wondering why we haven't been investing in these facilities uh, in, uh, in recent times. Well, that's a, I mean, it's a great question. These projects get dreamed up on, uh, on tables around Ottawa. And then unfortunately it's the, it's the implementation and the, the deep water refueling station at Nana Civic is, is a classic example of money that was budgeted, plans that were made. Now, you know, I, I don't have to tell anybody on this call about how short a season there is to actually make those type of, of construction projects happen. The opening of the Arctic waters though, David is right, um, undeniably, this is going to become more challenging in terms of the amount of traffic, both civilian and otherwise. I, uh, you know, the, the Chinese balloon was one thing. I remember the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, saber rattling as the Russians were putting flags on the Arctic floor and trying to stake claims as if it was the 16th century. They have clear designs on, uh, on having a much greater presence there, whether it's intentions to take resources, whether it is strategic to, to threaten North America, but the Russians are on the move uh, on more than the Ukrainian front. And we must make the necessary investments uh, to our peril, or, or we, will, you know, we will live with that regret for a very, very long time. It's big money. And my, my final point, uh, as David alluded to, is that we need to not only educate the public, but educate other NATO members about the importance of supply chain and, uh, and the intentions of other countries who have declared themselves you know, near neighbors of the Arctic. Uh, and I, I reference again, China building icebreakers. There's no ice in Beijing Harbor. They are looking far afield as to their interests and they think in decades, if not centuries. And so we have to brace ourselves for the need to protect Canadian sovereignty, to hold up our end of the, the NORAD agreement and to make the necessary investments. The, you know, the current Minister of Defense has, uh, has referenced big dollars, billions of dollars in the Arctic. But as with all things, and this, this discussion is highlighting it, it's not the announcement of the ribbon, ribbon cutting or, or the actual dollar figure. It's pulling the, the proverbial trigger and putting those projects, installations and equipment in place. Or our uh, adversaries will take full advantage. And if we don't do it, uh, you, you said this before, Peter, the Americans are gonna do it for us. And that just uh, undermines our, our, our influence. And uh, I put a phrase in the 1994 uh, 
white paper uh, over the objections of many uh, bureaucrats and some of cabinet, a country not worth defending is a country not worth preserving. And unless we do our part, uh, we're just going to find that, that in effect, a, a lot of our sovereignty is going to be uh, eroded. Uh, and, you know, the, the Americans are great at preserving their own self-interest. Uh, I don't want to get into the, the huge water issues that are occurring in, in the Western United States, but I mean, that, that could be a threat for us. And so unless we do our part, uh, and the Americans appreciate it when we do it, then we're going to lose our influence and we're going to, in effect, lose control over our own lands. Well, an interoperability, and, and I would defer very much to Andy's uh, military expertise on this, but interoperability is going to be a critical factor in our ability at NORAD and, and more broadly to, uh, to do our part. And, and again, I, I don't want to be the partisan one on this call. Um, David and Andy are doing a pretty good job beating up the Liberal Party. I'm going to just say that, you know, we were going to buy F-35 aircraft, you know, well over a decade ago. And I, I say openly, it was the Liberal Party that started the investment in that fifth generation Lightning II product. And yet, you know, as with Sea Kings, as with that fighter aircraft, there was demonstrable need that wasn't partisan in any way. The Air Force needed it. Uh, Andy was there during that discussion, General Lawson. Uh, everyone agreed that that was the aircraft. And uh, yes, it was a big outlay of money at the time, just as the, the National Shipbuilding Procurement Strategy has been. But we've got to move. And the Americans were even prepared, as they were with the, the Chinooks, to let us jump the queue and get a much bigger piece of that, uh, that procurement contract. That is to say that we would be making parts for 3,000 in the, uh, in the supply chain, as opposed to just the aircraft that Canada would buy and utilize. And, and, and then the training piece and all of those benefits that come to Canada. So there's an economic part to this on procurement that we need to translate to the Canadian public as well as to the necessity, the economic benefits and what this will do for the jobs of, of hardworking Canadians. Peter, if I could pick up on just, um, uh, the, and also David's point, um, the reliance on the U.S. to protect our sovereignty. And as they have done in partnership with us for a very long time, and it's been a, an amazing relationship, um, outstanding in every regard, where the United States, quite frankly, has pulled the lion's share in terms of the cost, disproportionate even to their population differences. Uh, part of my duties when I was an elected official, the prime minister asked me to sort of focus on Canada-US relations with a view to taking advantage of a variety of general officers who had retired and were now working for a certain president or in close proximity to him. So I went down to Washington quite a lot and talked to fellow colleagues uh, who were serving their president. And uh, you would be amazed at the tone and tenor change that happened under the former president of the United States vis-a-vis -vis Canada and its sovereignty and the United States willingness to protect Canada. Not so much is the simple blunt answer. So I'm not suggesting that NORAD will disappear, but the American tolerance for us not putting a great deal of money into it as we have promised to do for decades, and now we're just starting with three or four or five million dollars, it's going to be multiple billions and we are late in our payments. It's going to be multiple billions to provide surveillance so we know what's going on up in the Arctic, our Arctic, and as well some deterrent capability. And it's always cheaper to invest in deterrence than 
pay for the costs of war. Uh, and as well to patrol to make sure that we don't have people suddenly starting to drill or suck manganese nodules from the bottom of the ocean. And we're going to have to start doing it really soon because what happens if one of the people or even several of the prospective candidates to be the next president of the United States actually gets elected? Do you think, do you honestly think that the same sort of relationship will continue? I mean, President Biden, who knows Canada extraordinarily well, and I've met him several times, as have both of you, his first visit to Canada is coming up. Usually that happens within days of the election. His first visit to Canada is coming up as, prime, as president, is coming up in a couple of weeks. Is there a message in that? Well, yeah, there has been actually. There's been a lot of heated exchanges between the authorities in Canada and US with Canada being on the receiving end saying, you got to start pulling your share. We're not doing it. We're not doing it at home. We're not doing it as part of our alliances. And we have to do better. But Eddie, I, 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 I think I think we in, in defense of the, of the current government and, uh, you know, we have to look at what we've been doing in Ukraine uh, and the move towards the 2% NATO contribution. Uh, you know, I've talked to officials recently they are saying that Canada is highly respected for what it has been doing in Latvia for the amount of money that it is, it is put into Ukraine and Ukraine related uh, expenditures. Uh, yes, there's a, a limitation to the, a lot of the weaponry that we we have that uh, and, and you know, there are questions about 44 leopard tanks versus another uh, number, but we have been one of the largest per capita spenders after the United States and I think Britain uh, in to uh, the Ukraine defense. And I think that that has earned us uh, some really good marks uh, at NATO. And I think that uh, some of the attitude uh, towards us in previous years uh, has started to change. So I think we have to, we have to be fair. So it's not a question of, of uh, you know, beating up on, on a government versus another. It, you know, governments only act um, when they can bring public opinion along. And uh, I think now public opinion is, whether it's the Arctic or whether it's certainly the defense of Europe, I think the public is now uh, really of one mind, which makes it uh, easier for government to make the expenditures and to David, uh, David, do the re-equipping. With the utmost respect for all your service as a, as, a, as a parliamentarian, as a minister, and as a member of the Liberal Party, that's all good. I have, like you, a wide variety of contacts, generals serving and retired, a lot still serving. And I'm not talking about in the Canadian Armed Forces. This is internationally, obviously NATO. I know a lot of contacts down in the United States, just like you do. Senators serving and retired, members of the House serving and retired, general officers serving and retired. We are not seen as pulling our weight. We are not seen as contributing that which we should. As I am reminded on just a phone call yesterday with a bunch of retired American generals and British and German, and good group, uh, Canada's GDP exceeds that of Russia. And I, I might just pick up on, a, on another point, Colin, if you'll permit me. And Please, that is Peter. just the, the really geopolitical tectonic plates that have shifted because of Ukraine, the, the energy piece, the the discussions uh, yeah. around the urgency in the Arctic that we we've, we've just had, Canada does have an opportunity to play that niche role, that punching above its weight as it has in previous times of need. One group within the Canadian Armed Forces that I have to single out for incredible uh, praise, which they never seek, 
uh, is our special forces operators. And they, uh, among all of our, our allies, and I would suspect even our adversaries, um, are seen as extraordinary. Uh, I'm at the very top tier with Navy SEALs, with airborne regiments, uh, special forces in Canada are exceedingly good at what they do. And yet we need to expand as we have, and, and all governments I think have recognized this, that capability and bring some of that professionalism further down in, into our regiments with the stand up, the Canadian Special Forces operations, we have, uh, we have the capacity to do that, but we do need to grow the size of the force. We are bleeding um, members, both in terms of recruitment and our ability to retain in large part because of the perception and, and perceptions become reality. There is a feeling in the country right now that the Canadian forces are not getting the, the commitment that they need, whether it be financial, whether it be to continue to grow their, their capabilities. The, the Canada First Defence Strategy, much like Strong, Secure and Engaged, spoke of the, the home game and the away game and being able to simultaneously commit to, to that type of conflict, or in some cases, peacekeeping, peacemaking. We are under pressure right now, Colin, as you know, to do something about Haiti. And we've been there before, as the, the saying goes. We contributed mightily in 2010, uh, when I was minister, to the response to the terrible earthquake that uh, killed or injured over 300,000 Haitians. It was a massive disaster of proportions that we hadn't seen. Andy was in the thick of that. And we sent uh, troops down there to respond medically, to help clear some of the, the debris and the infrastructure and the rescue. Now it's a crisis of a different sort. It's almost like a gang warfare that's going on inside the country. It's become almost lawless. We are, we, Canada, the Canadian forces, I think are very reluctant to step into that particular conflict in large part, coming back to this discussion, because of our insufficient capability to take on a simultaneous mission. With Latvia happening, with what's going on in the Asia Pacific, we're gonna deploy a, a third frigate, uh, the volatility of what's going on in the Straits of Taiwan and that entire region of, region of the country have many people at D&D headquarters staying up late at night, planning and, and with contingencies going on. Uh, we are, are facing a quintessential crisis of being over, overextended and unable to match our, our actions with our words and the obligations that we have made. Of course, job one is to protect North America. And if we're not doing that, I say for emphasis, if we're not keeping up uh, our end of the bargain as far as the Americans are, are concerned, we are in real trouble in terms of our ability to receive intelligence, to enter into partnerships with other trusted allies, the UK, Australians, New Zealand, and, and we're seeing that. So reputationally, the harm is, uh, is happening. And just as we have been, and, and I say proudly as a Canadian, we have been a respected contributor in, uh, in global affairs. Uh, the, the partnership that Andy mentioned with the United States goes right back to the War of 1812. And we've been on the same side of the battlefield ever since. But it can all be fleeting unless we start uh, taking these issues seriously, which is why I, I commend, uh, Colin, what you're doing and what CGI and Halifax Security Forum and, and other platforms to have these discussions 
will go a long way to inform people and, and inform decision makers even about what we need to do on the way forward. Okay, my last I question think, to you. I, oh. I just I just say I just gonna say well, on, on one point on, on recruitment. Uh, yeah. I do think there is an urgency now in Ottawa uh, within the government and uh, to, to bring the numbers up. I, I'm told that uh, we're about 63,000, which is about uh, seven or 8,000 off the, uh, the the ambition of strong, secure, engaged. Uh, obviously, it, 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 it's going to take a bit to make up that gap, but I understand that that there is real effort being made to try to recruit to to, to get those numbers uh, to where they should be. Well, David, you anticipated, which is going to be my final question to you all three, and I'll start with you because you've, you've already half answered it. That is, so what, what should be the priority for the defense minister, working with the finance minister, working with the prime minister? Is it, uh, as you've just identified, I think recruitment is key because we realize that we simply don't have the capacity to do the things we've talked about, including any kind of idea of going into Haiti uh, or fulfilling the obligations under the Pacific strategy. Um, is it procurement? Again, getting the kit. Uh, is it focusing on a particular area like the north, for example, or is it getting our expeditionary capacity? Uh, you know, you, you can't do everything and you, you've all been in the hot seats. It's a question of choices and it's, it's, it's not, the choices are often tough to make. So I'll start with you, David, because you, I think you've identified that the key for now has got to be recruitment and building up our forces, as Peter says, to a level that, that is certainly more than currently allotted, but maybe you, you feel differently, David. No, I think it's all of the above. I, I, I think we have to do uh, all but of the But if you could you only, what, what you, you, you try and do them all at once, but what would you put the big emphasis on? If you're the Minister of Defence and you go out, what's your top one? And you, is, it, is it all of them or do you pick one in particular? Well, well the, the first thing as a minister, you've got to get your cabinet to agree to more funding. More funding has been committed. Is that enough? And, and that uh, more funding that is for recruitment or is it for procurement? Accelerated? No, it, it, but it, again, I disagree with you. It has <laughs> to be for a number of things. It has to be, uh, it's, there's no good having, uh, bringing up your recruitment unless you have uh, the, the equipment uh, that, that can be used to discharge obligations. Uh, so money is first. Uh, and then I would say recruitment, uh, and then targeting it on uh, key areas. We, we're doing this in Ukraine. Uh, I think the Arctic has to be our next uh, prime target for expenditures and for personnel and for uh, infrastructure, as we talked to Deepwater Port uh, and uh, allowing uh, naval facilities to have greater access to the Arctic. Uh, so that's where I would go. Okay. Peter, where would you? Well, all these aspirations of, of what uh, a defense minister would do with the money are great, but uh, I reference again Andy's point about you, you need to spend it within an allocated year. Yeah. Um, it's money, but it's people. You know, if we don't have sufficient uh, human resources willing to put on the Canadian Forces uniform and take on that unlimited liability and do very dangerous things that we ask of them. Uh, you know, our SARTEX are another group that need to be singled out uh, for their courage and what they do in life-saving exercises here in North America. You know, we saw even during the pandemic, uh, Colin, it's worth referencing the Canadian forces being thrown into action in going in and, uh, and being aid to uh, civilian exercises and, and trying to support uh, Canadians you know, floods and fires. So it's people. We absolutely need to build up uh, the the numbers 
of young people who are, are willing to join the forces. We need to retain those in uniform. Uh, you know, organizations like uh, Wounded Warriors do significant work, quite frankly, that government should be doing as well. Reputationally, if members are, are feeling that uh, they're, they're not being well treated after their service, that's a problem for retention as well. So there's a whole bunch of moving parts that we're discussing, but the emphasis on supporting the troops and what they do, that also of course includes in the future, giving them the necessary equipment to do these dangerous tasks and come home safely to their families, supporting them writ large. And maybe we have to take a little bit of an appetizer suppressant. I, I hate to say that uh, when it comes to our, our expeditionary work until such time as we're able to build up this capacity. The last thing we wanna do is put people in harm's way, arguably as we did in Afghanistan, and sending them in with insufficient protection and equipment to do that work. So we need to do it in a building block approach. And that's why a longer term plan, and frankly, I do commend the government, the current government for taking a look at this right now. It does require planning and sequencing. And when do those new uh, F-35s arrive? You know, Are we gonna replace the M777s and the tanks and the heavy armament that we're sending? We need to do this in a staged fashion with the backing of, uh, of the cabinet and the money, but it's people first. It has to be about those members. Okay, Andy, my question to you, you who served, and we thank you for your service, how do we encourage young people uh, who are, you were once one of them, to, to join our forces uh, so they can have a career? Is there, it's, it's tough right now with recruitment. There's all sorts of other opportunities. What, what uh, have you thought about what, would make an attractive recruitment sort of slogan? Well, um, my daughter still serves. Uh, I have nieces and nephews and cousins who are in the armed forces. I come from a military family, as you know. Um, so I get stories from them uh, at first hand and they serve mainly in the army, but uh, there's one or two who are in the Air Force and Navy. Um, the big issue right now is that they are not seen, that they don't see that Canada is giving them the support that one might expect for their armed forces, especially during such dangerous times. The second is the constant barrage of criticism about procurement, which they feel is aimed at the Department of National or at the Canadian Armed Forces. And they can't distinguish between you know, the political capital and the will. All they see is that this constant criticism is drawing them down. The third is, a lot of their equipments, I mean, you have ships, we're down to four to five operational frigates. The rest are busted. You have hundreds, if not thousands of army vehicles that are broken. You've got aircraft that can't fly. You've got training courses that are being canceled left, right, and center. And it's a combination of money, yes, of course. It's also a combination of ability to get things done. And that really brings me back to how would you solve this? Well, obviously money. And secondly, you've got to get cabinet to actually start paying any sort of attention to these issues because that's what sends a signal across town for the bureaucracy to stop tying the procurement system in knots. Gosh, they've gotten good at it. But let's just go back to 2003, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 where the same bureaucracy responded in a magnificent fashion all across party lines to get stuff done. 
And we've already talked about the long list of equipments and capabilities and training opportunities and funding that flowed out of that. And Afghanistan, in comparison to Ukraine, is not nearly as dangerous to our prosperity, to our place in the world, to our friends and allies, and yet we're not responding. Our friends and allies have stepped up to the plate. They're buying equipment literally in a matter of weeks that we are still talking about reviewing because they used to be in old plans when, for example, Peter was Minister of National Defense. Doesn't mean they're not valid. So the frustration amongst the troops is palpable. The frustration amongst our friends and allies is marked. And of course, Putin attacked because he thought he could win because a bunch of folk declared a peace dividend. And I'm not saying if Canada had been better prepared, this would not have happened, but we would be much better positioned to be a reliable friend and ally and watch the US elections. Be careful if you assume the Americans are gonna be doing all that they've done for us in the past going forward. We'll watch the American elections. All right, that's coming up. Uh, Andy, thank you. Uh, my final question for all of you, and I'll start with you, Andy, is what are you reading or streaming these days? <laughs> well, really, I'm, I'm focused perhaps a little bit too much on the Ukraine and what's going on there. And I find it mesmerizing and all-consuming and desperately worrying. But I do think there's opportunities for Canada to help. And so that's where my overall focus of consumption of information is going. Okay, Peter, what are you reading or streaming these days? Well, I, I've uh, opened up a book again that I read uh, a couple of years ago that was sent to me by Donald Savoie, uh, who's an eminent professor at University de Moncton called What is Government Good At? And it's, uh, it's very sobering, but it's informative and, and it's quite instructive on what we're discussing here today and how we get the public service and the politicians more engaged in problem solving and, and outcomes. I've also, uh, and, and this is not uh, recommended for all, but I've been watching a show, a, a BBC uh, production called Rogue Heroes about the standing up of the, uh, the SAS in, in the UK and their special forces operations that happened uh, during World War II. And of course, Canada's version of that was our participation in the, uh, the first airborne regiment, uh, commonly known as the Devil's Brigade, of which there are very few uh, surviving members. But it's, it's a compelling real life story about uh, what can be done militarily in the face of incredible odds. Okay, Donald Savoie and Rogue Heroes. David, what are you reading or streaming these days? Well, on the streaming side, uh, you know, Penny and I have really gotten into uh, on Netflix, The Bodyguard, which was a series about uh, the the bodyguard to a cabinet minister and all the intrigue in the British government. And I, I recommend it. I mean, you won't put it. It's a six episodes and you, you, you can almost do it in one sweep. It, it just grabs you. The other one we're watching right now is uh, In the Line of Duty, uh, again, a, a police sort of thr thriller dealing with the, the mob, drugs and all the rest. Uh, in terms of books, um, I'm, I'm a great admirer of Daniel Silva and all of his uh, sort of international espionage books and he's uh, and it overlaps in the art world and uh, the most recent one uh, last year was Portrait of an Unknown Woman. Uh, there's Ken Follett's Never which has been out for quite a while but I finally got around to read it which has some uh, bearing on the geopolitical situation we, we have today with the, the nuclear threat of, of Russia 
And uh, I just finished last week, uh, last uh, week, I guess it was, Peter May's book, The Night uh, Gate, uh, which is a, goes back to Nazi times and uh, the attempt to hide the Mona Lisa and a double Mona Lisa. So these, these are all thrilling books that are pretty really tough to put down. Perfect diversions. May, Silva, and Follett. Excellent. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by the Honorable David Colinette, the Honorable Andrew Leslie, and the Honorable Peter McKay. Remember, you can find the CJA Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, do give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and we will link to the suggestions of the participants today as to what to read and stream. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. My thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. Thank you.